Hey everybody, welcome to Open Matters. I'm your host, Guy Martin, Executive Director of Oasis Open. And this is our ongoing series dedicated to exploring the interplay between open standards, open source, and the communities that power them. We've designed this forum to showcase great discussions, debates, and collaborations as we work to unify the whole open development ecosystem. So before we get started, real quick, some housekeeping. Uh, please hold your questions till the end, and attendees may raise their hand to ask their questions live, or you can insert your question in the Q&A box. And a quick reminder that this session is being recorded for later playback. So with that out of the way, on to today's topic, cybersecurity. It's incredibly important, and that is probably the most obvious statement you've heard today. But if you want to dig deeper into why it's important and how it's impacting our daily lives, there is no better person to talk to than my guest today, Richard Morell. Richard likes to joke that he and I are some of the original foot soldiers in the open source world, and while that may be a compliment to some, I just think it makes us both seem very old. However, I've known Richard for a long time, and his take on open source, open standards, and cybersecurity is always a fascinating conversation. So, hey, welcome to the show, Richard. Thanks for having me. You bet. Before we get going, can you please give our audience a brief introduction of your past work? So I've been involved in Linux and open source since 1997. Um, I'm the core developer and the inventor of a lot of internet security standards and internet security technologies in 1999-2000 while working at VA Linux in Fremont, California, a little known a little known, little remembered company who were at the standards of the, the, the very birth of open source. In fact, the term open source was actually coined in VA Labs. Um, I invented a technology called Smoothwall, which now protects almost every single school in 50 states across America and uh, every single school, college, university, prison, police station <laughs> across the UK, uh, the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Australia. And uh, about it, it, it's about 2.6 billion users per day rely on Smoothwall to do internet content filtering and security. And that's all based around Linux and open source. 15-year uh, veteran of uh, Linux Care and Red Hat where we work together. Um, and I sit on various foundations and bodies across the UK and Europe. And I've worked with the likes of Department of Homeland Security, the US National Security Agency, worked up on you know Pennsylvania Avenue with most three-letter US government departments talking to them about how to keep themselves safe and usually being ignored in the process till the bomb goes off, basically. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, well. And, and, and I always say you're the 007 of security, right? There's stuff you can tell me, but then you'd have to kill me. So. Well, I'm shaking, anyway. not stirred, but I'm alcohol-free. So, yeah. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, welcome, Richard. So uh, let's get started. You know, I mentioned a moment ago, there probably isn't a single person who would say cybersecurity is not important. But how do you think its importance has changed, if at all, in this current world we live in? We're going through with COVID, you know, where our, our lives are increasingly online and, and all sorts of activities that we really probably hadn't planned to be this technology intensive, like schooling, like you mentioned, are, are now a big deal. So how do you think that's affects security? I had this conversation with the Times newspaper in London a few weeks ago where I reminded them that 25 years ago, we were all connected via PC anywhere. We would dial into a rack of modems and there was no thing of security. It was just, are you who you say you are? But now we're living in a world where we're always on. We're connected by multiple devices on IP addresses at our home, IP addresses in our cars and our mobile devices. And we need to be able to trust the governance and the standards that are behind those devices, the services that are providing the proliferation of um, services and technologies and those application program interfaces that we rely on. And as we've grown in the technology arena, 
a lot of the standards that came out of Stanford University that came out of Purdue in the 1970s and 80s around Unix that we that, that, that now form the proliferation, the backbone. The, the world marches on Linux and open source. Microsoft have made huge inroads now in the last nine years to really start understanding how to embrace open source technologies and a, a huge important partner of what we do in the open source space. But as we talk about things like classroom technologies in COVID, and you look at the, the, the inroads that companies like Google have made with Google Classrooms, the ability to put a, a Chromebook into children's hands, where they have a secure encrypted desktop experience, where they have a tunneled connection back to their high school, where they can pull off their timetable information, where they can do collaborative learning. All of this stuff relies on sockets, and all those sockets have to be secured. And all of that, all that technology is protected by stuff that we have developed in the open source community over the last two decades. So things like OpenSSL, the clue is in the word open. It's not developed by a company where there is a, anyone paying these guys salaries. We used to joke back in the day that the internet was powered by two guys called Steve and Dave who did DNS. We haven't really moved on very much to the fact that the people who are at the center of securing the user experience of people who are, who, who are grasping devices, whether that's a tablet, whether that's a mobile phone, whether that's a laptop, are still enshrined in a, in, in a very organized, secure schema where you trust the page that you land on, where you, your authentication for the session that you're logged into is using open source standards at the back end to do all of that authentication, to be able to say, I am who I say I am, and I am really connected to this Zoom channel, that I'm not some guy in Nigeria trying to sell you a truckload of uh, million, million dollar bills. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting how that sort of has has changed everything. But it's I like to say sometimes it's back to the future. When I took this role, I know a lot of people in our open source world were kind of like, that seems like a strange place to go to to do standards. And how does that fit with open source? And I said, actually, you know, you look at the, the genesis of everything you just described. It's based on standards with sure. open source implementation. So, I mean, sure. I think it's a natural play. Um, so to that, that's actually it feeds into kind of my next question. It, with that, what do you think the role of standards and open source is either individually or collectively in cybersecurity today? So let's take a left turn slightly on that question. If you look at in the US, you've got NIST, National Institute of Science and Technology, who have been absolutely critical to understanding how we tie down the actual physical instances of the services that technology run on. That if it wasn't for the innovation that came out of the open source security, the, the basis for the decisions that we've made over the last 12 and 13 years with SE Linux, SE Linux being security enhanced, and it's the ability to tie down and lock down services, to have governance policies, which allow you to be able to have enshrined controls about the things that you're running on your server instances. And in the open source world, if you look at companies like Facebook who are marching on CentOS Linux, companies like Disney marching on CentOS, companies who are using Ubuntu, who are using Red Hat, et cetera, et cetera, probably 90% of everything anyone touches in their day is running on Linux. It's not running on Windows servers, but those Windows servers, again, have still grown up, if you will, since 2008, 2009, using a lot of the standards that we have come in the, in the Unix and open source space, in the Linux space, to define as a standard. All those RFCs that every service that we run, whether it's SMTP for mail, 
whether we're looking at messaging tools like WhatsApp, like Facebook, et cetera, using their backend, using AMQP as their protocol. All of this comes from the open source community. And there's a reliance on millions of pairs of eyes to be able to look at that backend code so that those code maintainers can actually physically do their releases, understanding not just the threats, but also the opportunities. And part of security is about innovation. Now, when we innovate, we have to be able to innovate securely. And in the last seven or eight years, we've, we've, we've moved away from having bare metal Linux servers to using things like cloud, where we have hypervisors, where we have services running in containerized environments, miniaturized Linux environments. And contrary to popular belief, a container isn't just a zip file with a JSON descriptor. These are things that people are building their careers and their ambitions around. Right. Yeah. Docker <laughs> isn't just a, you know, a zip file and a JSON descriptor. I like that. Yeah. yeah. That's a great way of looking at it. Um, and, you know, here at Oasis, I think, you know, as I, as I've sort of really gotten in embedded here in my, in my role, you know, I see cybersecurity and trust are really, really big components of what we do. Um, mm -hmm. For example, our open, open cybersecurity alliance OCA, or even baseline uh, a protocol for verifying blockchain transactions um, where you sure. don't leave any data on chain. Um, what do you think is missing in today's current landscape of standards or open source around security? So you've talked about what's great. What do you think is missing? So you mentioned blockchain and blockchain has been heralded as this new opportunity to be able to do distributed proper computing. But one of the problems is that as we start to innovate, a lot of the things that we do get hijacked by people who, who mean well. And as, as we start to provision these technologies, what we're starting to do is to rely on things like dashboards. So you've got companies like Splunk out there who are producing technologies which tell us, which show us pretty graphs about security. <laughs> they, they say, hey, this is your external facing interface. These are the threats that you're facing. But they're telling you what happened. They're always running in post-mortem mode because they are scraping logs. So they're telling you after the event what happened. And one of the things that's starting to really worry me, genuinely worry me, is that we do not now have people in the, the, the technology arena who have sat, who, who've stood in a data center. A lot of the kids, not the kids, that's very, very <laughs> condescending to say kids. Cause I'm, I was going to say, come on now, we can't I'm, say that. I'm, I'm nearly 50 years old. Okay. So, so those of us who've never taken a fold up chair into a data center to provision a one new server, let's put it that way, who now provision via a button they, you know, they, they log into their, they, they log into their GUI and they provision a hundred Linux servers. They don't, yep. they don't know what a one U or a two U server or, or a cable management system look like. Um, one of the things that we're doing is we, one of the problems that we've created is the fact that if you walk into an organization such as a major US bank and you say to the CTO, can you tell me what your risk looks like? And you're met with this, this glazed look on his face when he says, what do you mean? Now his understanding of risk used to be 15, 20 years ago. Um, how many fire extinguishers he had in his server room? Um, did he have locked doors in his server room? And did he have a basic appreciation of Sarbanes-Oxley? That was his risk. But the problem is now he has 20 or 30 different offices around the US or around the world. He has a myriad of developers who are developing in a myriad of development technologies, Python, Java, whatever it is. Um, and he doesn't necessarily understand where they're getting all the code from. So back in the day, we had this thing called SourceForge. And SourceForge was um, a technology <laughs> we developed at VA Linux, which was 
a cabal, if you will. It was it, it, it was it was a web page where you could download the latest, greatest open source projects. But now, you know, we've got the likes of GitHub and GitHub try very hard to ensure that all of the code that is submitted and pushed to GitHub is always and everywhere secure. But then we have a real problem and that we have companies globally, and I will not name them, I could, I will not name and shame, <laughs> who take technologies such as Samba. Samba is based on simple message block. It allows Linux servers or Linux devices or devices based on Linux or BSD to appear in a Windows network neighborhood or on a NAS as a, as a file sharing implement. Now, a lot of these technologies are deployed across US military, across, across the European Union, major governments, to allow them to be able to rack and stack devices and now containerized instances and VMware ESX images, where essentially it's all based on Linux. It's all based on, it's, it's based on stuff they've, they've pulled down from Samba.org as an example. And what they do is they fork it. So they fork yeah. it and then they deploy it under their own proprietary license. Now, I'm gonna give your listeners a clue. If you are using a technology you think is based on Linux and open source and you spent your 25,000 bucks on it plus your service contract, I would like you to go and pull off the 10K and 10Q quarterly filings of the company you bought it from. And you scroll down to section 25 in that 10K, 10Q filing. And it says in small print, six point aerial hidden at the bottom, our technology is built on Linux and open source technologies for which we have no control of. Therefore, we cannot guarantee your security. So I would like proprietary companies who are using and relying on Linux and open source as part of their backbone to start playing nicer because we can't have cybersecurity standards on these proprietary technologies which are costing tens of billions of dollars globally if these guys aren't actually using latest greatest nightly releases or latest greatest releases of these technologies such as i will use the, 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 the project again samba because here's the thing in the open source community we march on goodwill and that scares a lot of people because I want to know that the maintainer of that open source project is trusted to be able to release the latest, greatest binaries. Mm. Okay, it marches on trust. However, when you get companies who are taking those open source binaries and re-releasing them under their own proprietary license, moving away from the general public license, it puts us into a world of difficulty because then when I go to these organizations and I want to pen test them, and I run my pen testing suite of tools on my red team or my blue team, go and attack them. All I see is old variants of open source code that I know potentially is full of bugs that hasn't been maintained because those proprietary companies are not pushing releases out to their customers in the same way that we in the Linux community, if companies are using Red Hat Satellite or Spacewalk on CentOS or they're using AppGet on Linux Mint or Ubuntu, we would automatically have a cron job, which just our servers are up to date all the time. Great. But these proprietary technologies, which are built reliant on open source goodness, are not being updated and maintained. And I, I repeat that when you have a US naval base in Hawaii and you have, you know, and you know damn well that it's running a, a variant of Samba, which it relies on in a public facing environment that's three years out of date. Why? That's just laziness. I, 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 I want organizations who are relying on Linux and open source to either start actually contributing patches back into maintainers so that we can do stuff and learn from them or that they start thinking about 
their users and think thinking about their environments because when you walk into these environments you, you say to them how many linux servers have you got and they say two thousand and you say twenty seven thousand and they say no 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 we've only got two and you say no you've got twenty five thousand other boxes based on linux they're just they don't say Linux because they're painted right. red and they've got a network cable plugged into them. It's still a Linux server. And it, it's running kernel too. So right. you haven't got any standards appreciation. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's actually, it, it's very prevalent in cybersecurity, but I think this is an endemic problem that I saw in, in my career in, in other places that shall not be named, but you know, places yeah. that I've been where, where they forked things and didn't actually do a good job of being good open source citizens because it's, it's more, it's more than just, Hey, use, use this open source code and get value from it. That's fantastic. But mm -hmm. there's, there's, I think both a customer responsibility, um, and actually a business responsibility to make sure that you're giving back so that you don't have to spend a ton of time. Usually I, I characterize this with C CIOs and CTOs as, Hey, do you want to spend a bunch of time, uh, you know, engineering time if there's a P171 fix that you've got to pull back from the main line. If you've forked and you've been on that fork for sure. two years, it's a huge amount of, it's a huge amount of risk. So I agree with you. Um, and I, I do want to get in, I, yeah, politics is always a strange thing, so we won't talk too much about it, but I do think that geopolitical shifts like Brexit um, are having an effect on open source and open standards communities. What's your take on that? So I think, I think people are forgetting that the word open the word open generally means transparent. Right. I mentioned OpenSSL earlier in the interview. OpenSSL is a Scottish project. So when you have your HTTPS at the top of your page, there are six little guys called Jock. No, that's that's xenophobic. But there, there are there, 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 there's a team in Scotland led by a guy called Mark Cox who are responsible for the maintenance of OpenSSL, the project. And as, as you know, we rely on OpenSSL to go to work. Okay, right, exactly. they're based in Scotland, which you know is a tartan-coloured country at the top of England, which is affected by Brexit. However, I'm European. You know, I I I I, I may live in a country which is going to be segregated from a trade perspective and from a from a legal perspective from the European Union, hoping to get trade deals with everyone else with fat chance or little chance of getting them. However. Just because of Brexit, it doesn't mean that cool bodies like Open UK, who are you know, part of the Open Standards Initiative, aren't netizens, citizens of, 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 a, of a global internet. And okay. my concern is the fragmentation of standards. It's not, it's not necessarily about the, the diversification of technology and how we develop stuff. Because if you look at technologies like OpenStack, huge swathes of OpenStack, are reliant on UK maintainers. Mm. Absolutely enormous parts of OpenStack are. And then the Linux kernel, you've got major universities in the UK and also organizations in the UK who are committing to the Linux kernel. Ubuntu is based in the UK. Um, so when it comes to taxes and tariffs, I don't think taxes and tariffs have anything to do with the ability to, 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 to stifle innovation. My concern is where in the UK, we've always had a lackadaisical organization called the British Standards Initiative. We've always sort of been five, 10 years behind the, behind the curve. And that's mirrored in many countries across the world where, where we're trying to understand how organizations are consuming technology. So 
in 2009, there was the advent of the Cloud Security Alliance founded in Burlington, Virginia. And I ran the Cloud Security Alliance in Europe for many years. And uh, I think one of the problems is that organizations back in the day didn't like talking to each other. But now we've got things like Eventbrite and Meetup where I can go, you know, well, I can't at the minute because we're locked down. I'm in a box. I can't leave my home. <laughs> um, but back in the day before this little hard shell virus arrived, we would be able to go to, I'd be able to go to Bristol where IMDB are based, which is only 15 miles from me. And in, in the IMDB offices, once or twice a month, they'd have a Java developer meeting. They'd have an XML de developer meeting. They'd have an OpenStack developer meeting. And if you look at those meetings, there'd be 15, 20 companies from major banks to graphic design companies, to insurance companies, to defense corporations where we're all talking openly. And 15 years ago, Guy, you know, one of the things that we never did with our competitors was talk about how the sausage was made. We never exactly. talked about our technology, yeah? We never yeah. talked about things that we were doing because it was intellectual property and it was yeah. our advancement. It was our ability as organizations. But the one thing that ties us together is cybersecurity standards. We're all trying to skin the same cat. We're all trying to ensure that the user experience is secure. But more importantly, security now, the security responsibility has shifted to the CFO because the CFO has responsibility to his shareholders and the CFO has a responsibility to the marketplace. And you talked about blockchain and blockchain is absolutely fantastic because blockchain gives us the ability to have an immutable ledger. So we now need to start thinking about how we understand what risk looks like, what assets look like, what is an asset? What are the security policies around people, policies, procedure, provisioned applications? And, and, and that, that, that's the missing piece that we haven't graduated beyond. We understand what the risk looks like at the firewall and we understand what the risk looks like at the application layer. But if, as I said, if you go to a major US bank and talk about risk and you say to them, how many assets have you got? And they'll say, well, define what an asset is. Now, an asset could be a developer pushing stuff out via Docker, but an asset could also be 1,300 orphan VMware nodes that you forgot that you had. Yeah. And it's yeah, understanding yeah. the fact that we are provisioning things faster and quicker than we've ever done before. And our risk appetite has changed because at the push of the button, we can provision or we can tear down cloud instances. Right. Okay. I mean, the, the, being able to automate the tracking and tracing of, of the stacks, I mean, that's something OCA is working on through the SCAP work. And, and yeah. you're absolutely right, because when you, you provision those things and you forget about them, then those are, those are the, the, the uh, security vector issues that, that come up all the time. So we're almost running out of time here. I want to ask one more quick question before we go to audience questions. And that's, you know, um, as someone who now heads a consortium, and you and I have known each other for a long time, so you know, mm -hmm. this is, I really was excited to come take this role. What do you think the role of organizations like Oasis is in advancing better cybersecurity open source or, or standards? I think one of the main things is opening the conversation. Um, to be able to walk into an organization with authority and to be able to have difficult conversations with people who don't necessarily want to talk to you is one of the things that Oasis has to be able to counter. Mm -hmm. You've got to be able to talk with authority, but also it's acting as the role of as an ambassador in the wider community. Now, projects get forked. We talked about that. Um, 
you've got organizations across the globe now using cloud-based technologies, tearing down a Linux, uh, putting down a Linux AMI and pushing it out there onto Amazon or deploying a Linux technology on top of Google Cloud Project. Companies are diversifying. If you walk into an average company now, they may have seven clouds, seven clouds, seven lots of security risk policies. Plus they've got on-prem, plus they may have a managed service provider network, plus they may have a partner network. Oasis enables people to be able to have those conversations, to be able to, to, to be able to build standards, to be able to understand what your organization needs to look like because the cloud that you have today is not the cloud you're going to own in two years time. Right. Yeah. And it, it's, right. It, it, it's being able to marshal ambition. And I think marshalling ambition is part and parcel of the Oasis mandate to be able to make people understand that the decisions that they're taking now really affect both the developer appetite, but also the user experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. And, and it's, it's uh, obviously a passion of mine to go talk about open and, and especially now how open the interplay between open source and open standards. I think it's, it's a really critical time that we're, yeah, it we're is. coming to. Massively so, critical. Okay. So with that, uh, Dee or uh, Jane, do we have questions from the audience? Hey, Dee here. That was really interesting. Um, I think for myself, my first question, Richard, is the problem that you so um, nicely described about people using open source tools and technology um, and then and, and uh, commercializing them and then having this disclaimer at the bottom. I mean, how do you prevent that? How do you solve that problem? I think it's an even bigger problem than that. We have organizations. I, I'm not going to name it, but one of the world's biggest telecommunications company, when a developer starts, they give him a laptop or him, him or her a laptop, sorry. And I want to see more women coming into the open source world. We're, we're blessed by having a, a small percentage of very talented female developers. We need to get that number ramped straight up. So one of the telecommunication companies that I work with, they give their developers a laptop, a blank laptop, and they get a choice of what they want. They can deploy anything they want. Linux whatever windows whatever whatever version now if you if you if you cannot start to 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 actually give people a dedicated desktop environment and standard tools then you're always going to be chasing your tail when it comes to the versions of software that you're deploying out to the greater world with organizations who are deploying technology um, I'll give you an example, and I can, I can say this with authority because I like the company. So General Electric, every time the U.S. Army goes anywhere, they march on GE, and GE send them a Linux server, and it's in a hand grenade case. It's in a green mm -hmm. hand grenade case, okay? And it's built around Linux and open source standards, and they work really hard with companies like Red Hat to make sure their boxes are kept up to date, even if that's on the back of a Humvee with a satellite phone pulling updates down. They do this stuff. They take it seriously. But we've got a lot of other organizations who are absolutely reliant, as I said before, on Linux and open source standards, and they are not putting back. And one of the reasons that they don't put back is that they are reticent to ship support. They don't understand how to do it. And this is going to be critical in the IoT world when you've got dams, when you've got cruise liners, when you've got all these smart devices in, in IoT-enabled cars where you've got to be able to provision updates securely over the air. And I was asked by a major global car manufacturer less than seven months ago to head up their, their 
internet in-car experience so they could push updates to their to their to their very well-known global cars and i said to them how long have i got to do this and they said four months and i said you don't know you don't know you don't realize there's gonna be a class action suit 10 years time and i'm gonna be in prison um (laughs) you've got to you've got to understand that the task that as I said, the cloud that you own today isn't the cloud you, that you're going to own tomorrow. Well, it's exactly the same with IoT devices, whether that's a Tesla, whether that's a Ford or a Jaguar or whatever it is. The, the environment you're pushing out to the car is no different to the fuel pump or the brake linings that you're going to have to support under warranty for 10 years. Now, in 10 years, technology can change massively. Now, I look, I, I climb into a Tesla now and I look at the user experience. And it's all based around Linux and open source. These guys didn't innovate. They 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 borrowed i was going to say stole borrowed technology from borrowed. borrowed borrowed we borrowed we borrowed we, we influenced them didn't we okay. um so you know the gtkx user experience for the for the desktop with all the kd backend and all the, the niceties with apache running on it or tiny http or whatever is running on it they've got to support this stuff for 10 years now if you look at the likes of apple they only support an ipad for six years or samsung support a tablet you know their, their new galaxy tabs for four years Tesla have got to support this internet enabled device for 10 years. I welcome, I welcome some information from them, how they're going to do that when projects get forked or maintainers die. But at least, but you know, at least Tesla's making an effort, right, Richard? I mean, I look at Tesla, right. And, and a lot of the stuff ironically that's that Tesla's using is based on, on work that I did at sun that, that updated dashboard type stuff. But at least they're making an effort, right? A lot of, I think they're making a better effort than some other car makers I've seen. Yeah, the former chairman of Tesla is now the chairman of the Smoothwool, the company that I founded. So that sticks in my throat. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but, I think- but it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? When you put back, you get the knowledge base to provide the support. I mean, it's just silly, right? So straightforward. It is. And if, if, if we go back into the automotive arena, um, you know, for the last... 23 years you know it came out of ford in the us we have the odb odb2 standard that you plug a device into your car and you can pull off all the error messages and you can clear down clear down all the logs that technology was built because it was air gapped away from the car it was just sensor-based information well the problem i've got is with a lot of these automotive stuff as we saw with chrysler and jeep they used linux and open source technologies but they didn't do it very well and cars came off the highway at speed so we need to make sure that always and everywhere the the organizations that are benefiting from the goodwill and the uh, and the hindsight of open source maintainers they put back and they become parts of a community because what i see is uh, if i look if i look down the number of commits in an average open source project in github i don't see a lot of companies putting back mm-hmm. i don't see a lot of upstream you know bug fixes that they, 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 they are using they are benefiting from what we're doing and they're also innovating in their own right, but they're innovating mm-hmm. in a silo. Mm-hmm. Well, innovating in a silo doesn't help us from an open standards perspective. And there you so have D, it, I, right? <laughs> D, I, know, I know we're running really late, Dee, but do we have one yeah. more? I mean, this has been a great conversation. Yeah, let, let, me, let me close with this big sort of, let's take a step back overarching question. Um, mm-hmm. What do we think is the next big breakthrough uh, in improving cybersecurity overall? That's a so, big 
so so some some of the pro some of the problems we tried to solve in the 2000s were things like identity access management the ability to have open authentication for your google account your facebook account your your whatever and all the yaml goodness on the back of that i think one of the things that we're going to have to try and solve is the proliferation of once we've got past the, the, the running out of ipv4 addresses and we're starting to use ipv6 is trying to do better identification management of risk at speed. I talked about this with the likes of Splunk that tells you what's, what's, what's happened. We need to have a better appreciation using technologies such as SOC and SIEM technologies, network providers, to be able to identify risk as it's happening so that we can have a better reactive stance. And how we do that? We, we commit as developers and maintainers to make sure that we get our patches our patches out there that we update our man files the descriptive files that say what what it is that we're doing and also that we work better as an industry so it's going it's going to be the management of devices and the management of session data to be able to protect is it me that's logging in is it me logging into my to my online banking is it me that's logging into my webcam or whatever it is or TikTok or whatever it is that i'm running but also i think now there is a reliance on internet -able, enabled devices i have cctv all over my property and my land and you know from anywhere in the world i can i can check my cameras but i want to be able to check that i'm the only one who can check my cameras i don't want someone else checking them mm -hmm. right. right yeah no this is been fantastic, Richard. So uh, uh, one quick thing on wrap up. Um, I know you have a lot of podcasts of your own, including security ones. So if our I listeners do. want to know more about to find out more about your work, just where put can they my find name you? into Google, they just throw my name to Google and they find 600,000 pages of chuff. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll find me. <laughs> okay, any, awesome. any, any podcast engine, just chuck my name in and, and it comes up with like 300 episodes of stuff. All, all the all the fun stuff. Well, but please, please don't so listen. Please don't listen to them when you're driving, you may fall into a coma. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would, be, that would be bad. So thanks very much, Richard. So I've been speaking with Richard Morrell, senior security expert and executive, about the importance of cybersecurity in our daily lives and the impact open standards and open source have on it. So Richard, you know, you're a great friend of mine. It's always a pleasure to chat with you personally or professionally. So I want to thank you so much for joining us today. That's lovely. Thank you for taking the time out. You bet. And all of you out there that are listening, thanks for listening today. And until next time, we'll see you here.